So we'll talk about a case and then work our way through it. So it's a case I had recently that I wanted to get the group's take on how to handle this. So I'm working at a regular clinical shift like we all do, and it's a patient we've all seen before, a 90-year-old gentleman presenting with crushing upper abdominal pain and chest pain. What do you think? Like that percent chance of admission. That's the complaint. 90-year-old crushing upper abdominal pain and lower chest pain. And I want to know. I want to know vital signs, right? I mean, I want to know what am I getting myself into? Vital signs, EKG. Like, what am I going to be in? ABC IVO2 monitor patient, or is this going to be a hey? When did this when did this pain start? Yeah. Have you had anything like this before? So I need to, and I want to work on making that differentiation as fast as I can. John said, "Rut row admission." Yeah, rut yeah. row. What does he look like? That's what I want to know. I just this is not one that I want sitting on the board, getting the yeah. triage process to see if they feel safe at home. I want to know right now, I want a picture in my head of what this patient looks like, so I'm very anxious already. My first question is, how did you come to be aware said patient entered your department? Because if you get tapped on the shoulder by your charge nurse going, go, yeah. I'm running on fire. Yeah, so this is a gentleman that checked into the emergency department through the front door, presents with his wife and his grandson. They were at home, they having dinner, and then at dinner he started having this upper abdominal and chest pain. He's able to walk in, you start getting some things with them. He's a little tachycardic at 105. His respiration rate's okay. His blood pressure is 250 over 195. They say it happened while he was eating. You go, kind of go through the rest of his medical history. He still drives, still has a part-time job at a local convenience store, still has all of his faculties and is very, looks normal sitting in front of you. Doesn't look terrible. So what do you guys think with that little extra piece of information? I see Jeff giving yeah. the, uh, I don't want to uh, go further. Yeah. I don't like the age, I don't like the chief complaint, and I really don't like the blood pressure. Yeah. yeah, nothing that interrupts a meal enough for someone to come to the ER is benign. Yeah. Right. If they stop eating, there's a reason. That's what I will say about that. That's that not a rule me. I've ever lived by. That's, that's the, a great rule. That is the most concerning part of the story to me. I'm sorry, sir, you stopped eating to come to the emergency department? We're gonna make you an ESI one. Think about all the patients you've ever had. Nobody, like, people will finish their meal and then come because they felt sick. But if they're like, no, no, I stopped eating because my throat started swelling, right? Like, I mean, people just don't stop. Were the blood pressures symmetric? Do you know? <laughs> you do not know what we're going to talk about, and you're asking the right questions. And so this is the blood pressure that pops across. He gets made an ESI-3 huh? gets put back, uh, oh. and gets put back in our non-acute part of the department. Cute. Right? And so you're like, okay, what did the nurse hear that I didn't hear? And so I pop in and see the patient right away because I saw 90. I mean, as soon as I see a 90-year-old in the waiting room, I just watch where that patient goes and I yes. can see them. And so I go in the room and his blood pressures are, you know, again, that 220 over 190 in the right arm, 180 over like 85 in the left arm. Again, he looks okay, has chronic blood pressure problems and had not been taking his meds. So that's probably where nursing anchored that his blood pressure is high, but probably not a problem. And then you start getting the history. So he has a history of high blood pressure, has a history of previous MI, back in the 70s, had it drilled out according to the wife, but since then, no real medical problems. They, I want to throw out the primary Spanish speakers. This is all through grandson and through an interpreter. And when I ask about other medical problems, they say there's something in his chest they're watching. They stopped caring about it about a decade ago. Because when it goes, it goes. <laughs> yeah. It feels like it's time to start caring again. Yeah, 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 100%. So, <laughs> today, um, so what, so what are you guys thinking? Like, what's your, what's your differential? What's your mindset? What are we doing here? 
So somebody in the audience said Eric Dissection, right? So that's definitely top of the list. Uh, ACS could be happening, right? Because he's old. You know, people, everybody at 90 dies of something, and a heart attack's one of the ways they die. Ventricular aneurysm. Okay. Yeah. Could be ventricular aneurysm. Didn't really have a PE history, but was old enough and could have been immobile enough and was tachycardic. Gastritis. Yeah. He could have just had some bad tacos. He's lying about it. Oh, good. The bad taco diagnosis is after three days in the hospital being seen by like five other specialists because a nine year old with that blood pressure, even if it's bad tacos, gets admitted. Right? I'm just saying, people say it to me half the time. It's probably just gastritis. Yeah. I think we're kind of all like swimming around in the same, the same diagnostics, but also thinking about like extra cardiac, extra pulmonary, right? We'd be worried about esophageal perforations, esophageal ruptures. This happened when he was eating. Mm-hmm. Is there some part of the story we're not hearing about? I mean, obviously, way lower on our differential, but you know, we are, we are the masters of the differential, and keeping that kind of thing in mind, and making sure that we're not jumping down into one, and possibly thinking about the other emergency that they could be going on is also important too, right? History of ESRD on dialysis. Is there something else metabolic, endocrine? Yeah, um, those other things that are swimming around in my head too. Okay. So, what do you guys want to do at this point? Like, we've got a history. We've, I would like, to, I'd like to panic. Sign out. Yeah. <laughs> John's like, Andy, it is shifting mid Oh, man. It's pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. Is, by the way, has anybody ever signed out one of these patients to somebody else? Somebody just said, sure, where do you work? <laughs> I want to come where you work where I can sign out a terrible, like, crashing patient and just leave. Oh, you got to buff him first. Oh, you got to buff him <laughs> first. This guy's luckily not buffed yet. So, so what do you guys want to do, like, clinically? So you have a 90-year-old, different blood pressures on the arms, this thing in his chest that they've been watching, but they stopped a decade ago. Did you already get the EKG? So we got an EKG that showed it was just sinus tachycardia, but no signs of ST elevation. Yeah, I want a chemistry 6000 and some IVs. Okay. I want an ultrasound. Okay, you want an ultrasound. What are we looking for in ultrasound, you think? So I'm going to be recognized that, you know, when we say the term rush, it's usually rapid ultrasound and shock and hypotension. But for this patient, I want to look at the heart. I want to look at the lungs. I want to look at the aorta. I want to look at the IVC. And I sort of, I want to get information as best as I can. And with this one, we've talked about how we're concerned about dissection. So I'm going to be seeing and looking at a bunch of different windows and thinking about like the supraclavicular notch, looking for the arch of my aorta. I'm trying to see any little piece that I can that can help me mobilize some specialists if I do find something diagnostic early, early on before having to wait until I can actually get a definitive, ultimately, CT. Yeah. So I love you brought up ultrasound because that was something we did. We did a rush exam on the patient. Oddly, we couldn't get an adequate view of where we come to find out the problem was. Just anatomically where his, I'll give you, he had an aortic dissection and an aneurysm, but it was in an anatomical place to where with the rush exam, yeah. you couldn't see it. Yeah. So, but it was good to do because then we could rule out a AAA in the abdominal aortic aneurysm. We did a, a supersternal view to look at the arch. Um, other than the fact that we saw his pump, his, like his EF was low. So we knew that like something was up because he'd had no history of heart failure. So his, it's almost as if his heart knew what was going on. I mean, it yeah. did because it's next to it. Yeah. And so we did an ultrasound that didn't give us, was kind of non-diagnostic. But what's the next test you'd want to do? Because we order, all the labs are sent. You know, we're working on two peripheral IVs. Um, what else do you want to do? Give me step portable, man. Yeah. yeah. So, I just want to see if I got calcium moving away from back ends of aortas. Sometimes you can di- make that diagnosis. Yeah, do I see a second set of like vertebral columns mm-hmm. in the yes. left lung, which, That's a which you can see in, 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 a, in a calcified aortic aneurysm? What else? I want to start thinking about blood pressure. Okay. Yeah. Right. What medicine am I going to give him? So if we're, if we're thinking about, I mean, if we're thinking right now without knowing the answer, right, <clears throat> we're thinking 
in my mind, I'm thinking high up dissection, high up ACS. I don't appear to see inferior or posterior components of, of an MI, so I'm probably going to start looking at nitro. Mm -hmm. Again, knowing that it's a dissection, and we want to make sure that we're also doing beta blocking to also hit with nitro. I'm probably going to be considering what I'm reaching for in these patients. I'm reaching for esmolol pretty early on for my beta blockade and then thinking about something else for essentially what we're talking about here is a vascular hypertensive emergency. And obviously, we can sit and we can Monday morning quarterback. Depending on, on what I looked at the patient, I would like to think that I would automatically put it together and hit them with esmolol right away and then hit them with nitro just after that. But I may just give them a sublingual and see what happens, okay. which is scary. But not knowing the answer to the question, that may have been something that I, I would have done. Yeah. Well, and conceivably, if the patient had arrived by EMS, he may have already gotten some. They have already gotten some. On the way gotten in. some of this as well. Sure. They've already given an aspirin. They've already given him nitro because of his blood pressure. So, yeah, I'll um, take the hit. I, I want to send him to the donut of death. Yeah, you want to really do? I, I do because here's the problem, right? We always say don't send him to the donut of death, but you don't have an answer until you send him to the donut of death. Most vascular surgeons require that answer before the surgery. Right, because your ultrasound didn't yield anything that helps you say that, you know, I mean, I get it. You can't be like, well, there's free blood in the abdomen and yeah. the story drive in while we're getting or whatever. So I get it. I'm with you. I'd like to think I would use Esmolol, but with that heart rate, I might have done nitro and some beta block. Who knows? Because again, they're not quoting me the textbook. I've got this tearing chip. So. Uh, but yeah, I know I'm a bad ER doctor, but I want to send him to the donut of death. So before you send him to the donut of death, how do you strategize who goes there with him? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, so it's always tough, but I think my biggest thing is I'm very blessed to work in a shop with residents. So to be honest, generally this is one where the resident likes to follow those patients, and I generally like the resident that's going with the patient, so that works out well for everyone. However, if I were seeing that if this were a patient that, that I was doing by myself, actually, if I'm not actively doing something for the patient, this is where you want your good nurse, the one that knows and is on top of it and will let you know. Because to be honest, even if I'm standing right there, if something happens, it's not going to change anything. So I'm going to go try and honestly probably coordinate stuff like, yeah. you know, look at the image in real time or whatever, you know, get the blood, fight the blood bank, whatever it is I got to do yeah. to kind of get things started based on what I think my diagnosis is now. And quite honestly, in the current times, I, at my particular shop, would have to already be working on transport. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm at currently. So. Yeah, I love you bring that up. Some of this has to happen in tandem, right? So mm -hmm. you're like, I need to get this definitive test, but I also need to get my other resources involved. And so I literally sent the patient to CAT scan while I made a phone call to the transfer center yep. and basically got on the phone and said, I have a really suspicious case for an aortic dissection or an aortic aneurysm. And so as I'm on the phone with the transfer center, I get the lovely call from radiology who is excited that the patient's GFR is too low. Oh, yes. Or the CTA. Does anybody yes. else's radiologist do this? Yes. Where they require a prior Roth and you have to call the radiologist. And so literally, like, I'm on the phone. <laughs> I'll never forget. I was on the phone with the transfer center. And I pick up another phone, and I must have, they must have been talking loud enough because the transfer center goes, did they just say they weren't going to get a CAT scan without a GFR? And I was like, that's exactly what they said. Yeah. And so I, I, I literally, like, I wait to patch through the radiologist. And I get on the phone. What are you looking for? And I'm like, I give him the patient. And as I'm basically giving the patient, I'm giving the patient the transfer center at the same time. And he goes, 
why did they call me? You should have just gotten the CAT scan. I was like, hey man, you guys wrote the dumb protocol that says I have to call you. So they finally put him through the CAT scan. So I could call transfer center, CT surgery says, hey, I agree, he's probably got a AAA somewhere. Get the images, call me back, but he's accepted. And so while they're working on transport, whether it's a helicopter or ground or not, we're trying to figure this out. Who else would you call at the moment? So I have a similar situation where the person that would provide definitive care to this patient is not in shop all the time. So I'm thinking about calling my acute care surgeon, and at my, at my center, it's our trauma surgeons. So I'm calling them as an attending to attending and saying, hey, I'm very concerned about this patient. I don't even know if they're going to be able to make it to a transfer. Is there anything else that I could potentially be doing or thinking about? I mean, are there any, and what are the Hail Marys that potentially you could help me with if things get weird? No, I think that's a great point. I actually called our chaplain. <laughs> Oh, wow. and part of it was because I, in my brain, I had started having the discussion to myself, this patient has a high likelihood to not leave my emergency department. He's there with his wife of 60 plus years. He's there with his grandson. By this point, a daughter and another grandchild is there. And I said, if, and because my brain, I thought, because if this goes south, I don't want to be there by myself. In the moment that they decided to stop watching this thing, mm -hmm. did somebody have an advanced directive conversation with this fine chap? So that is a really good question. That came up during the, he's back from CAT scan. I have now seen the image that he has a large dissection that extends from T8 across his diaphragm just under L1. Mm -hmm. And it's 14 centimeters. He is draining into his, into his chest, not into his abdomen. And so we start having the, but he's still awake and talking to me and he's has a full normal neuro exam and has equal strength in both of his lower extremities. And still oddly is perfusing his feet. Yeah. But I had that conversation with the grandson, the wife and everybody. And it was a weird conversation because it was, so in the next 15 minutes, he could die. He could literally go into cardiac arrest. If he goes into cardiac arrest, I can't do anything for him. But we could also get him whisked away to a place to fix him. And that was probably the hardest conversation I've ever had because it was the two extremes of, we could just have to stop where we can still go 100 miles an hour. So I guess um, if you guys were to have that conversation, how would you have that with the family? Well, seeing as I'm an internist, yeah. I would have had it in my office years ago. Yeah, and I, I would have loved <laughs> that somebody had it in their right. office years ago. Because I asked, I said, Good for you. do you have an advanced directive? And of course it was, what is that? And it was a little frustrating because I actually knew who their family doctor was. And it's one of our really good family doctors who I'm sure thought, oh, I'll never have to have this conversation. I imagine thought that, oh, he'll die of this in his sleep. You know, all these things that they didn't think of in the moment, but nobody had that conversation. And so it was interesting having it at the moment because it was them asking for numbers. So what's the chance he's gonna live? And I was like, I don't know. I just know that if he does go, there was no bringing him back. And it was, so it was a different type of discussion that we'll have where we intubate somebody or they come in septic or we get them back after ROSC and they want to have the advanced directive talk. But this was really a black and white discussion. It was, yeah. if he goes unconscious, he's dead. Well, one of the things that I don't think we talk enough about is how hard that is as the emergency physician to have to be confronted with this yeah. in a time of crisis, having to rewind the clock and explain to them what their disease pathology and not understanding why this wasn't already taken care of in a setting that was controlled when everybody was of sound mind and comfortable and nobody's stressed. Mm -hmm. You could have that conversation in advance. I think that's part of what we struggle with as ER physicians is that sense of, why didn't you just 
have this conversation. You see it with our oncology patients. You see it with these vasculopaths. We don't do enough to encourage our colleagues to try and do more of this conversation outside of the crisis situation. I mean, who here gets, who has job satisfaction having these conversations? Does anybody enjoy this? Because to me, this, this was literally the hardest part about this case was, yeah. how do I have, because we've all had the code conversation after ROSC, after so many other types of things, but this was the most black and white advanced directive talk I'd ever had to have. Yeah. But Andy, that's a different conversation because whether or not the family is in the right mind to sort of like have that understanding. If you've brought them into the room, which I do in my resuscitations, they're able to see. They're able to see things really aren't going well. But in this situation, you have a person that's still sitting there talking to you all, and you're having a conversation, which has gotta be just bananas surreal for the family of like, he's sitting here talking, and what may happen at any time is he will just stop. And it's not a, well, he's gonna, like, his, his blood pressure will slowly decrease. And there's no slow death here. Slowly. This is not a progressive kind of thing. This is just, it will be done. And trying to figure out, and the only thing that I could do is do exactly what we do, and what, what I try to do with all of my patients with the code is sort of say, like, hey, can you tell me what you know about today? And, like, that's the thing that I start with every conversation. That's the line I start with every single one. Because we don't know about the discussion about advanced directive. We don't know if, just like you were saying, hey, the reason that we stopped caring about it is because we were told that this day might happen. Or was there something else that, that they're concerned about or thinking about? And if you set that stage to have the same level of conversation, while this is going to be an incredibly challenging conversation to conceptualize for the family, in my mind, it would at least give them the best shot mm -hmm. trying to figure out what, what might be happening. Yeah, and I love the way you start that, Jeff. That is very similar to, you know, for the- Probably learned it from someone. Well, uh, hopefully. Uh, hopefully, right. hopefully I did it there. But I really, you know, I start off very similar with, you know, can you tell me about what happened, like before the MS crew, that, or can you tell me what you know, right? So that, so that that's our starting point. But man, this is a, it's a really tough one, Andy, to be honest, because you're right. For most of these discussions, my typical recipe is, tell me what you know, now I'm going to tell you what I know, and then I'm going to tell you what I don't know. And the two things that I don't know are what the patient's wishes are, usually, and what for sure will happen. Because I can say, probably won't come off the ventilator, or may not survive the surgery. But that's very different than you go, not gonna die. Like this is, it's not if, it's when. And I can tell you that when is sometime likely soon. But I think the other, the other thing that really galls me about this, and I think is what galls all of us in a different way with a different patient, is I feel like this is a patient where if healthcare were perfect and I could snap my fingers, I could save their life. And that's what frustrates me so much about this patient or the trauma patient or the whoever where I feel like if I just had the skill or the system were just set up to do this and I just picture like my colleagues that work in single coverage shops, rural shops where they know there's a technology that could most likely make this survivable but they don't have it. Yeah. Gosh, what a horrible feeling. That's what I feel like anyway. Yeah. I feel like this would be soul crushing for me. And this is one where, you know, so I had this conversation with the wife and the grandson and the daughter. They would like us to do everything. Mm -hmm. 
everything, which I think is appropriate. The patient is still able to talk to me. We do like Q1 neuro checks. He still has feeling in his feet, still has pulses in his feet, despite this growing you know, lava eruption in his lower chest. And so we do all the things, we order blood, transport shows up, he, he was gonna fly, so a helicopter lands, critical care team is there, and then he codes. Of course he does. Yeah. So he codes, and we start doing chest compressions. And uh, I will say it's probably the hardest code I've ever been involved in. I know it's completely futile. I know that I have to do enough for the family to believe me when I said I would do everything I could. But I literally, this is all just, what was it, Fugazi or Fugazi, it's all fake. You feel like it's theater, yeah. even though it's really not. You really are doing it, but you also, in your head, feel like it's theater because you know the ultimate outcome. Well, the question is, as you alluded to, do you bring the family in so that they can bear witness to it? And I have done, this is a part of my standard practice, before I will actually call a code, if there's a family member there, I bring them to bedside and ask them to say whatever they want to say to their loved one. And it may all be smoke and mirrors, but say what you need to say before I call this. And I've done that. I had a guy traveling through town who wound up having a catastrophic infarct and was down in the bathroom at a friend's house because he was staying in town for a brief period of time. His wife could not drive fast enough from Michigan to get to our shop in Chicago. So we put her on the phone and I went, I don't want you to be driving when you do this. I'm gonna put you right by his ear and say what you need to say. Yeah. So that he, your voice will be the last words that he hears before. I've never done it the way, I love that. I've yeah. never done that before and I think that is still incredible. Still then, I'm still in that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I think that's incredible. Yeah. But that gives some closure to the family, especially when they feel completely powerless. Yes. I don't know if there was an opportunity to do so, but given what you knew about the case, mm -hmm. I think as part of my discussion with the family, I would have asked them to just take five minutes, mm -hmm. share things that you would absolutely wish that you had shared, yeah. because I don't know what this timeline is. Yeah. He's 90. Maybe he's got another 10 years after him. Maybe we actually make this a hell of a save, but wouldn't it be great if you already shared that? Yeah. Y'all can talk about it, it later. It was odd, because they, they, we gave them the room for like the last minute before transport got there and mm -hmm. said, he's fine, they're gonna be here, why don't you guys go in? And so, but then they were, of course, as transport got there, he said something in Spanish I don't know, but it was enough to upset the wife, and then that's when he coded. Mm -hmm. so they left the room, we're doing all of this, and then, of course, we offered family to come back in to be there when we called it. To me, what was interesting about this case was, is you know, we've all done dozens of cardiac arrests. I've had dozens of patients with AAAs die, make it to OR. But the difference was, was those really two conversations of, how do you have a DNR conversation with somebody who, if you do everything, you will literally save their life. But the second they die, there's nothing to do. And then how do you also deal with the inner idea that this is a patient who came in acting completely normal, Yes. And due to some logistical delays in your emergency department, as John mentioned, if I could snap my finger, he would have walked out happy and healthy. But due to a delay because he spoke Spanish and we couldn't get an interpreter, and due to a delay because he came back from the room for CAT scan and there was that 30-minute delay to get the CAT scan. Just these delays to where he unfortunately coded as transport got there instead of in the operating room where someone could open his chest and fix his AAA. Like, how do you, how do you come to grips with that knowing that everything that you did could have worked if. I don't know if this may be not emergency medicine of me, but he was able to die with his family right there mm -hmm. rather than on a helicopter in the middle of nowhere, Florida. Yeah. So sure, maybe the delay of the five minutes here, 
the two minutes here. Maybe that might have been a blessing. That yeah, maybe that was supposed to happen, so they could be there yeah. rather than because I also think about. I mean, John, you work in EMS. Having someone initially code on a helicopter is really scary for everyone, and it's really dangerous for everyone. So, I mean, yeah, the delays, maybe they could have gotten if they did endovascular therapy. If you're at a place that had CT just if it was only the other day, what if they picked to drive to another hospital? Yeah. And this is getting super sappy, but they ended up with you. I know you're a good doctor. I know you took care of the family and the patient. And that's probably what needed to happen. And I think this is another example, too. Being able to use this as fire to make things better, Mm -hmm. to identify, and to recognize, like, collectively, the healthcare system is broken. I think everyone as a physician in this room knows that. And we are, like, really strong, dedicated, hardworking, incredibly resilient pieces of duct tape holding it all together at the moment, right? Yeah. Each one of us is like a little strip. You're like a little steri strip of duct tape. In these cases, it's so hard to also think about and remember all of the positive good things that happened that day, all the positive impacts you made on lives and all the positive impacts that you've made on other patients' lives where everything did line up. And I think that is the hardest thing for for us as emergency physicians, right? We occasionally will remember the good save, but we far too often linger on the one that could have been. And I wish I had a magic answer for everybody recognizing it, but I don't because I'm that way too. But I, I do think that the universe lays out the way that it's supposed to be. And we just look for ways to do it better the next time. We need to put on a slightly different lens sometimes and give ourselves the opportunity to celebrate the good death, right? So this was excellently handled in the context of the restraints of the services that you had immediately available to you. But taking that time out, I could still go home from that shift and yeah, I'd probably be a bit frustrated, but in the conversations with the family, I would find my solace. When you give them a chance to know that something is transpiring and it then transpires exactly the way that you said that it would, there's good doctoring that lives in that space. We have some of these cases with ischemic bowel that take days and days to die. And these are the kinds of challenging conversations that you have to sit down across a patient who is fine, conversant, can understand what's going on and explain to them that within the next 48 to 72 hours, your entire bowel is going to effectively disintegrate and trying to help get them to understand that. There's a lot of skill in an emergency physician who can take the time and do the education around those challenging death confrontational situations and help the patient and the family to get to resolution before the terminal event. Andy, thanks for, first of all, for sharing that story. I know it can't be easy, whether it happened recently or even you know, a little bit further back. And I would encourage all of you that one of the best things about being in a conference like this and one of your most most powerful tools as an emergency physician are your stories. It's how you change things. It's how you change your own day. It's how you change somebody else's day. It's how you change your patient's day. It's also how you change healthcare in the country by telling your stories. And it's about sharing that 
common experience that makes us all emergency physicians, but more importantly, just makes us all very, very human. Well, congrats on making it all the way to the end of that EM Over Easy episode. Don't forget, we are the official podcast of the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians. To learn more about this great organization, head on over to asoep.org today.